On April 15, uh, 2019, a fire was sparked in the attic of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, France. The alarms went off in the cathedral, and so they began to evacuate the people there, evacuate the workers, the visitors, and they sent a guard up to check out where the alarm went off. And he came back and said there was no fire. It turned out they had sent him to the wrong location. About 15 minutes later, they realized their mistake, and they sent more people up there to check that out. And by the time they realized that there was a fire in this famous cathedral and got down and called the fire department, it was 40 minutes after the fire had started. Eventually, about 400 firemen came to try to fight this fire at the uh, Notre, Notre Dame Cathedral, and hundreds of other workers were there. And they were fighting things like molten lead coming off the roof, trying to fall down, and they were worried that if the bells broke off and fell, that the entire cathedral would collapse on everybody on the inside of it. Eventually, the they could see white smoke coming out of the spire, and then it turned to black smoke, and then you could see flames bursting forth from the streets out of this roof of the famous cathedral. And when that, that spiral fell, it slammed all the doors shut and a, and a burst of flame flooded the place and they had to evacuate all the firemen to the vault area where they could try to save what they could. And by several hours later after it started, when they finally got the flames under control, the majority of the roof was completely destroyed, turned to ashes. Um, so much of it was damaged. Luckily for them that the stone vault underneath, since it was stone, was able to hold up. Those bells didn't fall. And the firemen were able to retrieve most of those historic artifacts and, and art pieces before the flames were able to get to them. But we look, and you might remember that about that happening, and when we look at that, that fire at that famous cathedral in Paris, France, it can kind of give us a little bit of an idea of what the psalmist in Psalm 74 was feeling like in the physical, the spiritual, the emotional devastation he feels when he writes Psalm 74. Now, we don't exactly know why or what's going on 100% uh, confidence, but most people, including me, think that it's written about the time when the Babylonians came and took control of Jerusalem around 580 B.C., Basically, God gave the people of Israel a choice. He said, you can act and you can follow me. I saved you to be a certain type of people. You can follow me and, and be the type of people I saved you to be. Or you can do your own thing even though I saved you. And for hundreds of years, the majority of the Israelites chose, even though God saved them, to just do whatever they wanted to. And God warned them, be like, hey, I saved you. You need, to, you need to come back to me. I saved you, and you come back to me. And they constantly ignored them. And so finally, after hundreds of years of God just being patient and gracious to them, that's what it was. It was grace and patience for them to endure that sort of rebellion for so long. He finally allowed countries like the Assyrians and the Babylonians to capture Israel and to take them away into exile and when the Babylonians came to ransack Jerusalem, they completely burned down the magnificent temple that Solomon built several hundred years later. They didn't just capture Jerusalem, they desecrated 
uh, Jerusalem. They desecrated the temple. They defiled the people. They utterly uh, profaned God. And that event scarred that generation of Israel for the rest of their lives and really left a mark and probably could still be felt today in Israel, in Jerusalem. Now, thankfully, you know, we're sitting here in this building. There's no threat of people coming and burning down our church. We're not facing the sort of persecution that they are and described in Psalm 74. But we can still relate to this psalm because the heart cry of this psalmist is still the heart cry we have all the time. The questions that he asks is still the questions that we ask when we feel devastated. Stuff like, God, why is this happening? How long are you going to allow this to last? What do you want me to do? And so this psalm gives us these things we can pray in our devastation, even if the devastation like the Israelites was caused by our own choices and sin. And so let's start off and we'll read the first 11 verses. It says, God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance, and this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Step toward the irreparable ruins. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your adversaries have roared in the midst of the meeting places. They have set up their own signs as signs. It seems like one bringing up his axe into a forest of trees, and now they break down all its hard work with axe and hammer. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. They have said in their hearts, let's completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. Nor is there anyone among us who knows how long. How long, God, will the enemy haunt you? Shall the enemy treat your name disrespectfully forever? Why do you withdraw your hand? Even your right hand, extend it from your chest and destroy them. So the psalmist starts off in verse 1, and he pictures his, his God's people as sheep, as sheep that God has bought at a very great price, only to just leave them on the side of the road like trash. And, and he looks at God, and he knows this doesn't seem to be in character with God to purchase his people like that, then just discard them like they're trash. He uh, points especially to, as he goes into verse 4, the details of what it is that is exactly bothering him, the devastation he sees. And it's that, like I said, these enemies have come and they have hurt God's people, but more importantly for him, they have decimated God's own temple. He says, first, these people have come and they've set up their own signs. These signs in verse 4, man, they, they could be... Uh, like military flags, but more than likely they were idols. They come and they set up their own idols in God's temple. And verse 4, like these wild creatures, they're roaring about like untamed animals in this sanctuary that's supposed to be revered. Verse 5, he said it's, they're treating God's temple almost like a, a forester going out and just cutting down trees, like they have no value to them. It's just resources. Verse 7, he says they burned it all the way to the ground, unlike the Notre Dame Cathedral, he watches as the entire building is reduced to ashes. 
In fact, the tense in the Hebrew here is the idea that he might even have been watching this as it happened. And he says in verse 8, man, these people, they've come and they're bragging, they're boasting, they're saying, let us completely subdue them. He has a, it's clear that their intent was to not only conquer Jerusalem and conquer the Israelites, but to openly, purposefully, and passionately hurt Israel as bad as they could, to desecrate Israel as bad as they could, and in the purpose show their complete dominance over God. They wanted to show they were dominant over Israel and they were dominant over God. And so he looks out and he answers these questions and he says, God, why? Why are you allowing this devastation to happen to us? How long, God, are you going to leave us like this? The image kind of reminded me of uh, a clear-cut forest, which is the imagery used especially inside verses 5 and 6. I grew up uh, spending a lot of time in the forest in North Tuscaloosa around a, a creek called Blue Creek. I'm not sure if any of y'all have ever heard of that area. Uh, it's called Blue Creek in North Tuscaloosa. And growing up, that place had a lot, a lot of huge hardwood forests. Now, if you've ever been in like a real hardwood forest, you know just how beautiful these things are. I mean, the smell of them as you walk through them, it's, it smells earthy, it smells like fr and fresh, like any, nothing you've ever felt. As your feet go through, there's a foot of leaves on the ground, and <laughs> as you walk, you hear that crunch, crunch, crunch. It's almost like going through snow, but it's leaves, and it's just so much fun to walk through. And you can look out, and there's no, under, there's no underbrush inside these giant forests, so you can see for yards through there. You don't have to worry about stumbling. There's nothing to stumble on. You can walk without stumbling. You can see with yards through these forests. And especially in the mornings, just the golden colors as they shot through those leaves as the sun came up in the morning, it was, it's just everything just, it looks like it was made out of gold. It's beautiful. That's the forest I grew up to camping in. That's the forest I grew up to learning how to deer hunt, learning how to turkey hunt. That's the one I grew up hiking in. But this forest was owned by a company that decided one day that they wanted to cut the timber to sell it for money, for profit, and replant a, a pine plantation, again, uh, as a way of making money. And so that's what they did. And that forest was never the same, where once stood these greens and reds and golds, now is nothing but blacks and grays. And where once were these vibrant colors, now stand bare, dead hills. And even with the pines growing up now, it's still not the same. And that's the image that he evokes when he sees this, this sanctuary getting burned down. He says, these people are tearing down the wood of God's sanctuary like it's a resource, like it's something that's not worth anything. And he watches as this place that he grew up in, this place that he worshipped in, this place that he loved gets completely reduced to gray, dark ashes. But what bothers him the most is not really even the fact that this is the place that he grew up or the place that he learned how to worship God or the place that his family and friends used to meet. What bothers him the most is really not that the sanctuary is his. He, he realizes that it's all about God. And check it out. He says inside verse 4, he says, Lord, in the midst of your meeting place, 
In verse uh, 7, he said, you burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. Verse 9, they said they have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. The, the Old Testament temple had a unique thing and that that was where God's name, that was where his reputation to the world was on display. And what bothers him the most is not that just that his place where he grew up was burnt to the ground, but that the, the building that was supposed to represent God's glory to the world was completely and utterly messed up and he devastated. And it shows us the first thing we should pray when we feel devastated, and that's this, express your emotions to God. When you feel devastated, in devastation, express your emotions to God. The first thing you've got to do, and we see in verses 1 through 11, is be specific. Don't be generic. I feel like sometimes when we get down to pray, we say stuff like, God, I'm having a hard time. Please help me through this day and help me to have strength. But notice the level of detail he's going into. He's listing specific stuff he's seeing that is bothering him. It's almost like we feel like when we pray, if we are too specific about what we want, too specific about what's bothering us, that it shows a lack of faith. But that's not true. God wants us to have the faith to believe that we, we can, that he cares enough, that we can go to him and and in detail express to him what we're going through and how we're feeling. He tells us that in First uh, Peter where he says, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. So the first thing we learn is express your emotions to God and be specific. Don't be generic. And the second thing is that we learn it's okay to ask questions. I think sometimes when we as believers, and I've actually heard this from people so many times, they're like, well, I don't want to ask God why because I just have faith in him that he knows what's going through. Asking God questions is not a sign that you are not a faithful follower of God. Look at this passage, verse 1, God, why? Again, why in verse 1? Look in verse 10, how long? God, beloved, why? In fact, in these 11 verses, he asks five questions. Three of them, he asks God, why? One of them, he asks God, how long? And the other one, he asks God, a yes or no question. It is not a sign of doubt or a sign of faithlessness to wonder why, to ask God why, to ask God how long are you going to allow this to happen. The difference is not whether you have questions, it's your response when those questions get answered. Are you going to still have faith when God answers those prayers and answers those questions in ways that you don't want? Are you still going to have faith when God answers those questions or doesn't answer them at all? The existence of questions is not a sign of doubt. The question is, how are we going to respond to God when he chooses, or if he even chooses, to answer those questions for us? The thing we always have to remember, even in the doubt, is that he describes us as being a shepherd, the shepherd to his sheep, and that is totally true. We have a good shepherd over us. Even in our questions, even in our expressions of pain, we have to remember we have a good shepherd. A shepherd that cared enough about you to die for you. Jesus says this about himself. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He, hire, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them up and scatters the flock. He flees because he's a hired hand and does not care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, and just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. When facing devastation like the guy did here, the first thing we can do is, like him, is express our emotions to God, being specific, asking questions, but remembering that we do have a good shepherd that cares so much about us that he even died on the cross to save us. But he doesn't stop there. Psalm 74 doesn't stop in verse 11, but he goes on with these two other things he prays. And the next one is in verse 12 through 17. He says, Yet God is my king from long ago, who performs acts of salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You gave them as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open springs and torrents. You dried up every flowing stream. And yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have prepared the light and the sun. And you have established all the boundaries of the earth. You have created summer and winter. So he starts off and he, in verses 1 through 11, and the largest part of his prayer is, is spent in doing this, and that's expressing his emotions to God. But he doesn't end there. And that's the thing we have to realize, too. As good as it feels to express our emotions to God, I feel like our prayers end there so much, and we've got to move on. Move on to the next phase of the prayer. And that is you have to focus on the fact of God's sovereignty. You can't miss this. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's even more clear because in verse 12, it uses a conjunction there that shows a strong break. A strong break in between verse 11 and 12. He's moving past, he's moving beyond just the emotions to the fact of who God is in his prayer. He starts off and he, and he uses this myth that the Babylonians believed in as a way to describe how powerful God is. See, the Babylonians, they had a belief in this creature called Yom and the Leviathan, these sea creatures. And these sea creatures, according to the Babylonians, were, were um, the deities of chaos, of the uncontrolled elements of nature. They lived in the water. And in this Babylon, Babylonian myth, the chief god called Baal had to go every year and conquer these creatures. And it was a hard battle, too, in these stories. It wasn't like something easy. I mean, he had to fight a long time. He had to really struggle. And he would conquer them every year, but only good enough for one year. And he had to go back and do it the next year. And for all of time, he always had to go back and keep fighting these creatures. And so the psalmist, he, the Babylonians, like I said, I believe, are taking on this thing. He's looking at this myth, and he remembers a Hebrew story, a, a, a real-life event for them, and that is... The event when God saved them from the Egyptians and he divided the Red Sea. And he says, my God doesn't have to struggle with the forces of nature year in and year out. My God created, my king created nature. He's in control of nature completely. He is sovereign. He said, if, I, if the Babylonians... If he can control what the Babylonians' own God can't control, he can handle the Babylonians. He says, that's my king. 
He says, you in verse, he says, you're my king of old, meaning not just that he's been saved a long time, but he's saying, hey, you were my parents' king. You were my grandparents' king. You were my great-grandparents' king. You have been my king from old. You have controlled the whole cosmos. You control all nature. He says, you control the laws of nature. And verse 15, using the references to story like Noah and Joshua, uh, drying up the Jordan and the water from the rock. He says, God, you control the laws of nature themselves. You put the boundaries on nature themselves. You, in verse 17, you even control time. Look, he says, you have created summer and winter. In other words, God, you even created and control time itself. He says, that's my king. That's how sovereign my God is. This is the one that I serve. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the story of the Babylonian gods, these hammerhead worms. Have y'all heard of these yet? Probably will if you hadn't heard about them yet. They're an invasive species to Alabama. They're not original from here. They just now come in. And I remember they, the first time I saw one. They look like earthworms, except their heads are flat like a hammerhead shark. In case you see one, that's what they look like. I remember the first time I saw one, I was near our house, and I saw it laying on our porch. I'm like, okay, I want to get this earthworm off my porch. But then I noticed this weird-looking head. When I had never seen an earthworm with a flat head like that before. So like a true millennial, I Googled it. And it turns out that um, they're a very hard species to, to get rid of, and so I did get rid of that. The next time it rained, we all walked back outside and went, there's another one. There's another one. And I got that one. There's another one. We ended up killing, I, I've killed five of these things at my house already. They're extremely hard to get rid of. Like I said, they're an invasive species just coming in. They are a predatory worm that kills insects that are good for crops and good for flowers. And they have a toxin on their skin that is the same toxin that puffer fish have. Now, if you touch them as an adult, it's just going to make your hand feel a little numb, a little weird. But if a small dog uh, touches it and digests it, it could be harmful to that dog. And they're almost impossible to get rid of because, these, because if you cut them up or if you smash them, they just form more worms. If you cut it in half, they just become two worms. If you cut them in a fourth, they just become four worms. The only way to get rid of them is you have to pour salt on them, put them in a Ziploc bag in case the salt doesn't work, basically, and then throw them away that way. And you have to just keep buying them every year after year. And this is what the, the psalmist, the image, he's saying, hey, my God is not the type of God that he has to keep fighting these forces of nature over and over and over again, where it seems like he can never seem to quite conquer it. But my God, my king, is sovereign enough that he created and controlled everything at once. In other words, he's sovereign even over the devastation happening to me, if you read between the lines says, I still have a king who's in control, even in this devastation happening to me. So that means for us, we need to remember to pray that, to, to move beyond and to focus on the facts about God, to not get stuck. And this is what it's hard to do, because when we feel devastated, it's easy to get so focused on ourselves and so focused on our field. But we've got to learn to move on and to focus not just on our expressing our feelings, but to focus on the fact of who God is. 
And there is power in a prayer that says, God, I know you're still sovereign. I've seen you save me in the past. I've seen you save my families in the past. I know the stories of the Bible of your deliverance. I know that even though I don't know why you're doing this, I don't know how long or why you're allowing this to keep happening, I know you're still king. And God, you're my king. There is power in that prayer that saves you. And so that's the second thing he prays. But then he moves on. He has this third thing to pray. He's expressed his emotions. He's mentioned the facts. And now in verse 18, he's finally going to make his appeal. Finally, in verse 18, he really asks God what he wants from him. Verse 18 through 23. Remember this, Lord, that the enemy has taunted you and a foolish people has treated your name disrespectfully. Do not give the soul of your turtle dove to the wild animal. Do not give, forget the life of your afflicted forever. Consider the covenant for the dark places of the land are full of the places of violence. May the oppressed person not return dishonored. May the afflicted and the needy praise your name. Arise, God, and plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish person taunts you all day long. And do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you, which ascends continually. Verse 18 through 23, it's the third thing he prays, but really it's the most important thing he prays. If you checked out on the first two, check back in on this last one. Because what he says in verses 18 through 23 is the foundation of basically everything else he's already said. It's the foundation of why he expresses his emotions. It's the foundation of why he expresses has facts. And it's the foundation of why he makes this appeal. And that is this. When he's devastated, he asks God to defend his name. God's name is not the idea where you, you say the name Jesus and suddenly you, your life gets all the way better. Uh, or that you call out the name of Jesus and suddenly your life gets all the way better. When the Bible talks about God defending his name, that was God's reputation. That was how the world perceived who God is. And what the psalmist basically prays is he's not praying, God help me so that my life is better. He's not praying, God help me because my heart's broken and I'm in pain. He's not praying, God help me because I don't know how much longer I can take this. He's praying because he says, God, I want your name to be known. That's the foundation of his prayer. And so that leads us and asks us and gets our question is, why do you pray? What is the foundation of your prayer? Is the reason you pray because you want God to heal you? Is the reason why you pray because you want God to give you a better life? Is the reason why you pray is you want God to help your grandkids? Is the reason you pray because you want to get blessings? Or is the reason you pray so that you can say, God, make your name known in me and through me? That's the reason I pray. Because the psalmist, yeah, he's going through a tough time, but the number one thing he's interested in is he wants God's glory to be known to the whole community. And he knows the devastation is hurting that. And so we look at this and really it reminds us of two things that God does when he defends his name that we can pray today. And first of those is we can ask God to defend his name by remembering us. 
that's kind of a weird request. And I don't know, to be honest, as I was thinking about it, how many times I've heard people pray for God to remember us in, in a prayer. But look at what he says here. He says in verse 15, remember this, Lord. In verse 19, do not forget the lot. In verse 20, consider. In verse 22, uh, remember how foolish. Verse 23, do not forget. The number one thing he prays is, God, remember us. This is not a prayer. When you ask God to say, God, remember me, this is not a prayer because you think God has forgotten or a prayer because you have forgotten. What you're saying is, God, when I place my faith in you, I made you the Lord of my life, which has obligations with it. I should treat you as Lord of my life. But it also means that as my Lord, you have promised to protect and take care of me. And when I'm asking you to remember, I'm asking and saying, God, I am trusting in the promises that you have told me. God, remember me. I am one of your people. I have placed my faith in you. Remember me, God, because I trust in the promises and trust you as my Lord. This ultimately got this promise here that Peter talks about. He goes on. I've already read part of it. I'll read it again. It says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober in spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Sounds a little familiar in 74, doesn't it? Seeking someone to devour. So resist and affirm the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So to him be dominion and glory forever. Amen. We ultimately have the promise from God. That in Jesus Christ, we always have eternal life and the knowledge that he is always there with us. And even if this world falls apart, we know we have a place in heaven in Christ. God defends his name when we ask him to remember. But he also defends his name by showing grace and mercy. The same grace and mercy that God is showing a person who has hurt you is the grace of mercy that he has shown you for hurting Christ. So we look at this, and the reality is we're a lot more like the Babylonians than we want to admit because of our sin, that we have had times where we've rebelled against God, and we have taunted God. And like it says here, that's, as multiple times we've mentioned, that's pretty foolish to rebel and taunt a sovereign king, God. But God is... He defends his name, includes not just being just, but being gracious and merciful. And God is such a God that he is so patient with us. And he says, why? The same pa he's patient with you for your sin. It's the same patience and grace he shows other people. Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. But to come to repentance, he says inside the Bible, the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Even, we said, the prayer, your prayer, the purpose of prayer is to show God's name in your life and to show God's name through your life. That even includes all the way down to your prayer to get saved. A lot of times we look at the cross and we think it's all about us. But the reality is, even when you pray to get saved, the purpose of that prayer, too, was for God's name to be known in your life and through your life. 
That's why it's a hypocrisy. It's a, it's a, it's a problem when we pray to accept Christ and don't let his name be displayed in our lives. I mean, that's what the whole point, we talked about this passage in Ephesians before we left. It says, blessed be the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places uh, to the praise of the glory of his grace. He says, we were predestined according to the purpose of his works to the end that we are the first hope in Christ to be to the praise of his glory. He says, we received the Holy Spirit promise for the installment of our inheritance for our redemption to the praise of his glory. We were bought as adopted brothers and sisters of Christ through the blood of Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of his grace. Four times in 1 Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, he says the whole point of why you're saved is so God's name is known in your life and through your life. And part of the reason, part of the answer to why not now, what's taking so long, might just be, be that the same patience that God has shown you, he's showing towards someone else. And he is making his name known. He's making his name known that he is a gracious and merciful king, not just a sovereign king. So... The psalmist of Psalm 74 is going through something that we are not. His temple of God is getting burned down. But in his devastation, his cry out to God shows us three things that we can say in our own devastations or our lives. But ultimately, it points to this, that when we pray, it's not about our name or our reputation or our good. It's about God's reputation, God's name, God's will. And the main takeout being when devastated, ask God to defend his name. Express your emotions to God. Focus on the facts about God's sovereignty, and don't forget to pray asking God to defend his name. So the next few moments, we'll pray and give you a chance to do just that. Perhaps you feel touched by God that you know something you need to pray about today. This is your time to do it. We're going to have a chance for you to pray. These seats are open if you want to come down here. This altar is open if you want to kneel. And do this. Express your notions to God. Talk about the facts you know of his sovereignty. And ask God to defend his name. Maybe you need to make a decision because you haven't been baptized by immersion or need to join a church. I'd love to talk to you about that. But maybe you're here or you're online and you're listening and you heard about the story that Jesus Christ, God has such grace and mercy on us that he died on the cross for our sins. You need to accept that forgiveness that's in him. I'm here if you need to talk to me online. You can go to Greensport Baptist Church at gmail.com or comment below. I'd love to talk to you guys about that. You respond as God has called in your heart.